S&P, the ASX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, isn't too hungover. At least, I hope not. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, and for the first time in 2020, is Dr. Anirban Mahati. G'day, Doc. How are you, mate? I'm great, mate. How are you? I'm happy New Year. And to you, thank you, mate, and happy New Year to all of our listeners as well. Now, this is going up, hopefully, if the uh, good law is willing and the creeks don't rise, on the 3rd of January, our first pod- podcast for the new year, 2020. Turns out we're actually recording this in 2019. So we're hoping that, well, frankly, we're hoping that the uh, podcast is still a thing this year. We're hoping that people are still listening. We're hoping that nothing's gone wrong with the scheduling of the podcast. Assuming all that's true, you're listening to this on the same day as the first ball of the, the test in Sydney. So hopefully our boys are doing us proud on the field. And hopefully you're going to enjoy this podcast while you watch, because you know, quickest one of those things you can watch on the TV with a sound muted. Just turn up if um, if Nathan Lyon takes a wicket. Otherwise, stick with us, and we will help you. In this particular case, doc, we've got a short, short agenda. It's an Sh- important agenda. We've only how, got two items, mate. How can we have short agenda? <laughs> we've only got two items on it. We never there have short agenda. Go. No, no, we do. Right, we've never had just two items before. The first one is we're going to talk unveil our five stocks for 2020 and beyond. That's right, five stocks each, a total of 10 companies. We're going to put our stamp of approval on. We are going to make it happen. And then, because we love to, we're going to dip for the first time again this year, lots of firsts, mate, into the Foolish Mailbag. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. Now, we're, we're having a... Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of leg room here, a little bit of, little bit of room to move. We weren't going to talk about our successes or otherwise for the 2019 portfolio that we chose in early 2019, partly because we are recording this a few weeks before it goes to air. And so, frankly, goodness knows what's going to happen to the price between then and now. We will check in on this list. Now, it's a... Did we say five-year or three-year list? I can't remember. I think we said... Three, All I, right. but I forgot. But can, in any could, case, we could do three or five. It was a long-term list. So one year is not going to make or break any of the positions nor any of the overall returns. I say that because I genuinely believe it. Also because somehow Doc is currently winning and we don't like that. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, well, not pretend, but I'm just going to, I'm going to reinforce the fact this is a long-term story. However, mate, I will let you take a very short, why would I say victory lap, but you know, you can, you can have a bit of time in the sun. So... Bearing in mind this is in mid-December, we will come back to this list properly and we'll, get, we'll do a full debrief a little bit later, mate. But just for now, give us some headlines as to how our 2019 portfolio is going. So, you know, if uh, here's the thing. Um, in, instead of taking a victory lap or anything, I think I'll just say this. If anyone followed the 10 picks that we suggested, mm-hmm. they would be... On average, yes, miles, miles ahead of the market, <laughs> which is always a good problem to have. Exactly. In uh, fact, if I look at the numbers now, this is me in real time doing a quick bit of maths because, you know, oh, I'm messing this up entirely. Hang on. Uh, I'm literally typing some formulas into Excel because that's what we do around here because we're numbers wonks. The average as we speak is 37.5%. No higher, 38.5%. The, the, yeah, that, that's here's The couple of other quick stats. We'll Go see. on. There's... So, you know, of the five stocks... Uh, oh, here's the other interesting thing. There was one company that both of us picked. 
Yes. Now the question is who 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 stole whose idea is, is <laughs> we haven't resolved that yet. Well, it depends. Um, if it keeps going well, I'll take credit, man. If it falls from here, it's all your fault. <laughs> but the the one company that both of us picked <laughs> actually is the best performer across the lot. Right, I see. So so that's interesting. Um, again, it's only one year. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'll point out is across. Uh, the both of us, mm. we've gone to only one stock that's actually uh, two. One each. One each. <laughs> that's negative. Now, I, I am say, actually surprised by that. <laughs> we will we will probably review 2019 later. It has been a spectacularly good year for the market in general, and so our performance is is good. Uh, I, I argue very good. Certainly, market beating. Um, at least thus far. We'll we'll see what happens in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, but also, it's been a fantastic year for the market. We did the numbers a little while ago, mate, but the market's up somewhere around 30% from its lows around this time last year uh, and about 25-ish percent up for the year. So, you know, a really, really strong year so far, more than doubled the usual average for the year and about triple the average if you take the last 12 months rolling. It's been a, it's been a very, very good year for the share market. At this point, I should, you know, I'll remind people that, you know, often you'll hear this call, the clarion call of sell everything and run away. Right. When you sell everything and run away, this is what you miss, basically. And, the, well, again, a massive tangent, let's go with it. Um, that was exactly the, what was being talked about in November, December. The tech stocks were on the nose. The market was down. People were wondering what the hell comes next. Like, it was a real, you know, it, it wasn't nothing, right? Like, this was, this was genuinely, oh, here's the crash. It's finally here. I hope you're not invested. I hope you're in cash. It was a terrible, terrible piece of advice to take. And interestingly enough too, mate, worth saying, this has been a reasonably ordinary day for, ordinary year, it's not a day, ordinary year economically. And so those who say the economy is up, therefore stocks are going up, or the economy is down, therefore stocks are down, or the economy is flat, therefore, it, it, there is, never has been, a direct correlation between GDP and share market returns. It just doesn't happen that way. Yeah. And so it's just a reminder that, I saw what Greg McKenna, who's a guy I follow on Twitter, who's actually good on macro stuff, was saying something. I can't remember the exact phrase, but something like, and he's a trader, so you know we're not traders, we're investors. But but I like Greg. He says something like, "You need to separate the rhetorical self from the trading self." And maybe we could, we should probably say the investing self from the trading self in this instance. The idea basically is, even if you think the economy is X, Y, or Z, investing accordingly is probably not the smartest thing to do. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Shall we move on to the stocks? Let's move on. All right. Now, should we do one each or should we go through a list each? What do you reckon? Uh, you go through your list first. Your whole list? Yeah. Okay. Why not? All right. So what we're going to do, I, I'm, we're making this up on the spot, mate. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm literally thinking as I talk. So... What we're going to do, we're going to go through the stocks. We're going to talk about the companies. And then I want you to ask me one pointed and challenging question for each company. Uh-huh. I'll do the same for you. And we'll try not to be negative, just to just to flesh out the thesis. If there's anything that I missed or any particular challenges I haven't hit, make sure you call it out so we can make sure we, we tell our listeners. Now, as always, these are long-term investments. As always, we never would recommend anybody have just a portfolio of five stocks. And as always, we don't know what's going to happen in the next three, six, nine, or 12 months to these companies. So um, bear this up with the ground. This is not the only buy list you should have. This is not the, you know, in any sense, <laughs> the only companies you want to own or, or any guarantee these are necessarily going to do spectacularly well at all, let alone in the short term. So let me just put that out really, really clearly so we don't mislead or mistake anyone. First one on my list, mate. Now, I've said before, very publicly, including this podcast, I think ethical investing as practiced by many people is useless at best and actually potentially returns damaging at worst. 
because I don't know that where we invest our money in the secondary market, that is buying shares of other people, don't matter as Zach to the companies we invest in. However, the first company on my list is a fund manager called Australian Ethical. <laughs> they invest ethically. And some people might say, well, hang on, Scott, didn't you just say that it wasn't worth doing? Yeah, absolutely. The difference is I don't think, unfortunately for me, people should always listen to me, Doc, as you well know. But however, I don't think everyone's going to listen to me. I think there's going to be plenty, plenty, plenty of people who chase down ethical investing options, no matter how misled I think they are. And I think Australian Ethical is likely to benefit from that. Now, Australian Ethical is a relatively small company. It is very exposed to the share market. So where the share market goes, so will go Australian Ethical. And if we have a decent market slump at some point, we will at some point, but if we have it anytime soon, Australian Ethical will absolutely get tarred with that brush. As share prices fall, the amount of funds under management for Australian Ethical will fall. And as a business that makes its money based on a proportion of the funds it invests, it'll actually make less money in that sort of environment. Plus, if the market falls, it may not earn its performance fees either. So this is a business that will have lean years from time to time. Completely okay with that. Not worried in the slightest, but it will happen. It's a $400-odd million company. The current share price, as we record this, is about $3.67. The broad idea here is fund managers will make money from higher markets. I expect markets to go higher over time. That's the base. The second component is they seem to thus far have a good track record of investing well. That's important. And thirdly, the amount of money chasing ethical investments are going to rise over time. It's a very small company. It is the only, well, it's not the only, it's the... Dominant choice, if you if you whack Australian Ethical into Google, Ethical Investing into Google, you will find Australian Ethical, the company. And that's a really, really powerful thing. So there will be more competition. There'll be a heap more competition in two, three, and five years' time. Every fund manager seems to have an ethical option right now, and that's fine. But if you're looking to invest either your own money or increasingly your super, Australian Ethical is the place you are likely to come out. And I think over time, a relatively small business like Australian Ethical with $400 million of market cap, I think can be much, much, much bigger in, look, you know, there's no guarantees about anything, but I think the chances are it's a lot bigger in the years to come. Doc, question, so comment, question. challenge? Um, no, I don't have a challenge. I think, um, I guess the main challenge here would be, so the the border, the, the base assumption here is that the, the funds under management is going to increase over time. Mm-hmm. And they're basically going to do the charge of performance fee. I'm guessing the charge of performance fee as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, would you be worried if there's a lot more competition than that the the amount one could charge for funds under management effectively goes down? So, management fee probably in a competition is going to come down. How does that impact? Yeah, really good question. So. For my mind, my assumption is, and I could be wrong about any of these assumptions, by the way, my assumption is that superannuation and personal investing funds invested ethically, i.e. with a with an ethical filter as your starting point, are likely to be firstly less or more sticky, sorry. In other words, people are less likely to change away from Australian ethical back to perpetual or platinum or Magellan or something, back from away from an ethical option back to a, a less ethical, just non-ethical option. Secondly, I think, again, if you're investing ethically, you, you are kind of intrinsically some people are saying i want to invest ethically and beat the market and they, they will demand both a decent proportion of people i've spoken to friends uh, and contacts acquaintances who've said i just want to find ethical options those people i think are also going to be less price sensitive i expect over time that yes there will be compression on fees absolutely you're mad if you don't think fees are going to be lower in 10 years than they are today but i think the fund flows plus the less price competitive price focused nature of these particular um, fund investors and the likelihood of them hanging around longer on average than the average fund investor, I think all, all go well for Australian Ethical. 
Sounds good to me. I'm going to turn about talking about my second company, mate. And this second company, I don't know if you've heard of. It's a little business uh, based in a little place called Omaha, Nebraska. Never heard of it. No, I wouldn't have thought so. No. Um, look, it's an old textile mill business uh, run by an 80-something-year-old bloke. 90. Um, no, not yet. Well, nearly 90. Nearly 90. Yeah. Not yet. He, uh, he was born in 1930. His name, of course, is Warren Buffett, and he runs the investment conglomerate known as Berkshire Hathaway. This is not going to shoot the lights out. This is absolutely not going to be the company that tops the list, unless we have a, a massive market crash next year, in which case it actually may top the list, um, but, but probably be the least worst loser rather than the biggest winner. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway, for me, it's a cornerstone investment in my portfolio. If you're choosing any five stocks um, to build a portfolio around, I think you're mad if you don't have Berkshire as part of it. If it does nothing better than an index over time, then you're getting an index-style um, investment option if it does better than that even better run by the smartest blokes in the in the room uh, two of the new f- investment managers are pretty good both a combination of in, an investment portfolio and some wholly owned businesses uh, that are generating good returns and I think will for a very very long time this is not going to be your market smashing year, year by year investment uh, but I think it's market beating over the long term certainly over 10 years or more now mate I don't know anything else about Berkshire Hathaway so you probably got lots of questions any particular <laughs> questions or challenges about Berkshire Hathaway? So my, my question is relatively simple. Um, why not just have, instead of Berkshire, which could actually lose to a market, it's probably lost to a market over the last decade. <laughs> uh, it's actually lost to a market. Uh, last time I checked, had lost to a market by a small margin. Mm-hmm. Um, largely, I think, because of the cash drag it has got. Yeah. Um, why not just buy an S&P 500 ETF? Really good question, mate. The, in all honesty, in 10 years' time, you might look back and go, yeah, should have. So uh, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely leaving that open as a possibility. My contention, if unless, unless this is... So the old, there's the old thing about the new normal, right? So what is, what is genuinely a new normal and what's just people thinking there's a new normal and it goes back to the old normal pretty quickly? The, my view is that I think Berkshire has struggled to beat the market over the last 10 years because... Now, there's two things. One is tech is absolutely taking over. And that Berkshire is famously not a tech investment business. The second is that investors are paying up for growth companies. Now, we know, and I'm not, I'm not going to draw a direct parallel, so stay with me until the end of this conversation. Um, we know during the, during the 98, 99, 2000 kind of tech boom and then bust that Berkshire looked terrible for a few years and then looked great after that because once the heat had gone out of some overpriced tech, Berkshire was kind of left having done the slow and steady thing and, and eventually winning the race. If and when there is less growth kind of um, there are less gains by the growth part of the market I won't say value necessarily because Buffett's not traditional grain value but the idea of Berkshire being more likely you know we're talking about the we're talking about rotations in and out of stocks right I think it's fair to say there's not a lot of money going into the less growthy parts of the economy or parts of the market I should say and more money going into the growthy parts and that has an impact on prices of both sets of companies and that's exactly what happened to Berkshire Berkshire fell meaningfully during 98, 99 uh, and then of course held and then rose after that while others crashed about it. Now, I don't think there's going to be a tech crash. It's not a direct analogy. But I do think over time, if and when the stellar, astonishing, wonderful gains, including some of the companies I own, by the way, um, of the tech businesses settles down, quietens down, I think Berkshire may well come into its own. And if that is the case, that the biggest and brightest and best of the Microsoft, Facebook, Apple, Google, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, Netflix, don't deliver the same sorts of gains in the future they have in the past, it may well be the case that Berkshire, that rebalance helps Berkshire beat the market. And that's my supposition. All right. 
Next one is another business I own. Uh, it's Corporate Travel Management. It's also one that was in last year's portfolio. By the way, I will go through the ticket codes at the end of this. Corporate Travel Management is a business that helps corporate travelers, funnily enough, or companies uh, organize travel on behalf of their teams. Um, it's in a really interesting part of the business. It's, its core proposition, by the way, is you pay it a fee and you still end up paying less for travel than you would have if you didn't use it at all. The combination of reporting, so staff, uh, you don't have to have the, the boss's PA organizing your travel, the travel authorizations and approvals are done automatically, the customer service is provided directly by these guys. It's basically an online travel agent of sorts. That's effectively what they are, really. They're an online travel agent, but for, for corporates. And the experience time and time and time again is by the time you use corporate travel solution, not only do you spend less money on admin and with better reporting, you actually spend less money on travel overall, even though you're paying corporate travel a fee. Now you say, how is that possible? And the answer is because the bookings and the process, the management of the system ends up being a better deal even after paying their fee than it was before doing it. It seems counterproductive, counterintuitive. It's not, it ends up being true for most, if not all of the clients they work with. Their customer retention is fantastic. Their international growth has been strong. They've been bashed up by shoulders. Now, this time last year, the shares are actually higher. So this is the one stock Doc mentioned that is actually losing in my set of five from 2019. But here in 2020, um, I look, if anything, I think the shares have come down so much and the business continues to grow organically and lesser by acquisition. That, that organic growth, if it continues, I think will continue to look after shareholders. It is my largest ASX holding. And so it's uh, on some levels only only right that I put it forward. Uh, but I think corporate travel management is one of the less appreciated businesses. I think the short case thus far has been unproven. Uh, and I think the the, 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 sh- the simple underlying growth of this business continues to impress. And I think it will be a long-term outperformer. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. So you don't. Um, I guess my main question with corporate travel would be um, growth has come a lot via, so partly via acquisitions and partly organically. Correct. Now, when corporate travel was small, acquisitions um, had a meaningful impact in terms of driving growth because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're, if you're making $100 million and you can bring in another you know, $20 million, that's a 20% bump. Right. But now if you're doing a billion dollars and you can bring in only $20 million, it's not that much of a mm-hmm. bump. So as you become larger, growth by acquisition becomes harder. That's one. Yep. I guess related to that is the other, you know, corporate travel, like many ASX companies, has used um, um, quantitative easing in some form, which is basically print their shares to <laughs> buy companies. Yep. Um, <clears throat> now that works well when your share price is high. Mm-hmm. But with the shortest beating down the share price, um, it, I think in my mind, makes it harder for them to acquire a meaningfully sized acquisition to drive earnings growth. Yep. Um, or you need so, to pay significantly more for it in total consideration rather than giving them 15 shares, you've got to give them 25 shares instead for the same dollar value. So it which dilutes causes, you more. Dilutes which causes more. dilution and Correct. therefore the EPS growth is not as accretive as it could be. Correct. Spot on. So how do you think about these things? Yeah, really good. So look, the, the PE currently is about 22 times earnings. That's not cheap, but it's not super expensive. For business, a grew organic sale, organic earnings, I should say, about, I want to say high teens, if I remember rightly, last earnings period. Um, and that was without any meaningful acquisitions. So my, my, general, my general thought is that it absolutely will make acquisitions less likely and or more expensive and or more dilutive. That's absolutely true. Um, I'm not super concerned, frankly, about its. Um, 
I'm not super concerned about the acquisition part of its business, particularly because the price has come down. Now, if this was still a $30 stock, I'd be saying, well, man, they've got to do something to justify this lofty PE. But with a PE of 22 and with decent organic growth, I think any acquisitions it manages to do will be kind of the icing on the cake. And frankly, it also helps get the shoulders off their back. <laughs> the longer they go without making another acquisition, the less the shoulders can claim there is something dodgy going on with the accounting for organic sales growth. So I, you're right, you are dead right. It, it will be more more expensive and or harder outright to do acquisitions. There may be less acquisition candidates. And as you've already mentioned, having to buy a larger chunk of business each time to deliver the same percentage growth. I'm actually pretty happy that they've, they've pivoted partly because they wanted to, partly because they had to, into pure organic growth. They've built out a network in Asia, in Europe, in the UK and in the US. Not necessarily in that order. In fact, probably almost entirely in the reverse order. Um, but at some point, they can now either bolt on little bits or start to just organically grow out that network, particularly in the States, by the way, but but just in general. Um, and I think it's got many years of decent, not not spectacular, but decent growth ahead of it, compounded, that's, a, that's an impressive number, organically. And if they make some well-timed or well-chosen or well-priced acquisitions, it's even better. Sounds good to me. Mate, my next one, my fourth, my penultimate idea is again one that was in the list last year. Now, I'm happy to say this one's up. <laughs> but as we talk about, you know, sometimes you want to pay a higher price for a, for a great company. This business is basically, you and I have slightly different views on this, I think. So I'm going to give you mine and you can, in your challenge, feel free to, uh, to disagree. I'm a big believer in long-term tailwinds for Australian growth through exposure to China. Now everyone say, yeah, yeah, we know that, we know that. But not many people think about iron ore, or they think about coal, they think about something else. In this case, I think Australian consumer brands have a really, really strong tailwind going into China. The Chinese consumer, obviously the Chinese population is massive. The Chinese consumer is rapidly becoming more affluent on average. Again, not every, every Chinese person, but the average Chinese consumer. And the Western brands as status symbols are and will remain, I think will grow as um, status symbols for for Chinese consumption. So uh, I came from a, a couple of jobs ago from an alcohol company that, that had done spectacularly well selling very, very high-priced whiskey into Asia in general, China and Japan in particular. Uh, we're seeing that they Chinese consumers have a strong demand for Australian brands across the board. Now, there are hits and misses. We've talked about Bellamy's challenges in the past. We've also talked about A2 successes. And while New Zealand might claim A2, we're going to do the Russell Crowe Pavlova Farlap thing and claim that as Australian. Um, but the, the idea of kind of, you know, brand Australia, it's not a panacea. You can't just put Australia or anything and, and sell it into, into China. But the growth of wine and premium wine in particular, both in volume and price terms into Asia and China again in particular, makes me think that Treasury Wine Estates remains a really great business to get long-term exposure to the Chinese consumer. They have fantastic pricing power. They're exercising that pricing power like you would not believe. And the reality is that if you have to make and then store wine, it's pretty there's not too much cost differential between making and storing Grange or making and storing a bottle of Queen Adelaide, right? Now, the difference between those is you can sell one for a much, much higher price. If Treasury can, I think they will, continue to get higher and higher prices per litre of wine sold and the costs don't accelerate at the same rate, you've got volume growth, you've got price growth, and I think you've got margin expansion over time. Now, Treasury is not just an Australian winemaker. Uh, I should say, by the way, the brands in Australia are the Penfolds, Wins, I think Lindemans. Um, the, the brands, uh, they, they sell a whole lot of uh, American wine, also has a little bit of French wine. So there's, there's also a global play more broadly, and that's still a positive thing. There are quality brands around the world. That's, a, that's the, the kind of the big picture story, but the really attractive growth part of the story in my mind is the growth of Australian wines into China, particularly high value and high prestige brands. And Penfolds Grange is obviously top of that list, but there's plenty that are in that order. 
And that's why I think Treasury is a long-term outperformer. You know, in this one, I don't really have a, I guess, a, any key question. My main issue here might be that Treasury has some debt on its balance sheet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think about a company like this, which has got some debt uh, on its balance sheet, and how do you think it might, if, if there's a meaningful, say, for example, a Chinese slowdown, how affected would a company like Treasury be? That's a really good question. The uh, the debt is uh, because look the, the challenge with any business that's in the wine business, particularly treasury, is you have a decent amount of inventory that sits on the shelf for a decent amount of time, and the more expensive the wine is, the longer it has to sit around. Now you're eventually made good on that because X years out you get to sell it for multiples of the cost of production. Now, I don't know how much it costs to produce a bottle of Grange, but I'm tipping it's in the tens of dollars. Maybe it's I don't know 10, 20, 30, 40 bucks. I don't really know. Um, you're selling it for five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars. The margins are phenomenally large. The only challenge is you've got to wait a little while to get that money back. So you, they don't own many of the wineries. They own some wineries. Oh, sorry, uh, vineyards. They own some, but not many. Um, they, they, own vine, they own wineries and they own effectively storage facilities and they on sell the product. The, the, they have to carry some degree of working capital in just pure inventory. And the turnover, inventory turnover is, is phenomenally low compared to someone like a Woolies that turns over his inventory every 14 days. Treasury's averaged inventory turnover, and I've never done the numbers, but it's probably more than a year. It's possibly more than two years, particularly if you do it by dollar value because grain sits on the shelf for years and years and years at a time. So I think that's a that's an important consideration. To, to, yeah. the, the bigger issue, I think, is probably the risk of the inventory they're using that capital to um, pay for. So as long as, I mean, to, so what to be really clear, debt is absolutely always a risk because there's always a chance that whatever you've used that debt for, isn't worth the debt you've taken on to do it. In this case, if the wine was turned out terrible, if they'd have a, a bad vintage year and had to cut the prices of the wine, there are absolutely areas of times where there could be problems. They've also done some acquisitions, some other things in the, in the past. So this is a complex business. It's also is trying to get a whole lot of supply chain costs out at the same time. I don't expect the debt to be a problem in terms of the ability for the company to continue to operate and earn market beating returns, but it's absolutely an additional layer of risk that investors need to be mindful of. Now, you know, businesses like Sydney Airport and Transurban are, are basically, you know, debt vehicles with, with airports or roads attached. Um, and they are they, they're decent quality businesses because of their, their business models. There's no way in the world Treasury is a, as high a quality in terms of recurring revenue flows as a toll road or an airport. Uh, but I do expect their debt not to be a problem for the company. Shall I get my last one? Go for it. All right. And then we'll go back through the tickers. The last one is a US listed company. The only US listed company or, or investment, I should say, and I'll explain why, on my list of five. And again, it's one that came from last year. It remains one of what I think should be a cornerstone position for almost any investor, any Australian investor. And that is the NASDAQ, the beta shares NASDAQ ETF. We talk about it all the time. Um, basically, if you want to invest in some of the best and highest growth businesses in the in the world, um, they are found on the US exchanges. You can open a US brokerage account. We would strongly suggest you do that. Uh, get invested directly. That's a wonderful thing to do. But if you're not going to or you're not ready to or simply you don't, you know, you'd rather not, uh, the BetaShares NASDAQ ETF is an ASX listed instrument that gives you exposure, market cap weighted exposure to all of the NASDAQ 100 except for the financials. Uh, basically, it's, it's, a, it's a tech ETF, very low cost, very index friendly, 
um, you know, not as low cost as some of the some of the absolute vanilla ETFs like the, the Vanguard stuff, but there is no Vanguard NASDAQ ETF, at least as far as I know. The BetaShares one is a really great way to get exposure to all of the tech names you already know and you're already thinking about, uh, plus the ones of tomorrow, the ones that aren't yet the big and the, the, the best and the greatest. Um, it's, it's a challenge to really understand exactly how we, you know, can get... You could invest in the US, as I said, and I think you should. But if you're not going to, NASDAQ ETF should be in everyone's portfolio. It's in mine. It's in my sister's. Um, I, I just think if you, unless you want income, the NASDAQ ETF is something you really, really should have as part of your portfolio. And that's my fifth and final. Now, Doc, I'm going to give away a little bit of behind the curtain here. I'm just going to say out loud because we, we're doing this in one take. You actually have one company there twice on your list. I've just had a, had a, had a quick cheat. So I'm going to talk for a minute while I let you try and work out how to replace that, that fifth company with something else uh, just to avoid us having a, a, an awkward exchange in, uh, in a few minutes' time. So I'm going to run through my list of companies while Doc thinks desperately for a, for a better idea. Uh, the top five companies for 2020 and beyond. And remember, this is not just for 12 months at all. Please don't mishear that. And if you are listening now, I know you haven't misheard it because I've said it really clearly. Um, the five companies on my list are Australian Ethical. The code is AEF. The second company, actually, I mentioned, I said there's only one US company. There's actually two. There was Berkshire as well. I should have known that. The second one for me was Berkshire Hathaway. The, the code is New York Stock Exchange, BRK.B or dash B, depending on your broker. Uh, there is A class shares, which are $300,000 odd. Uh, the B class shares are 220 bucks. So go with that. Um, the next one is Corporate Travel Management, ASXCTD, not CTM, CTD, Corporate Travel Management. Treasury Wine Estates, or TWE, the company acronym, which is always nice and easy. And the last one is the Beta Shares NASDAQ ETF, or NDQ. Right, that's my five. I had a Time question to... about the NDQ. Oh, did you? Yeah. I wouldn't have thought you would, but go for it. Okay. Here's a <laughs> question. Go on. NDQ has got two companies which are over a trillion dollar in market cap US. Yep. Two trying to become trillion dollar in market cap US. Yeah. One nearly a... Half, or two nearly half a trillion dollar companies. Yep. How does this thing continue to outperform in the years ahead? Nice. So there's, there's, oh man, you want me to short answer that shortly? Short answer. Oh man. All right. <laughs> okay. So very quickly, first is outperform in this case is versus the ASX or the All Lords that we use as our benchmark. So in terms of outperforming, it can simply outperform by doing better than the ASX. That's the first thing. Not that I'm expecting the ASX to do terribly, by the way, but it's just a relative thing in absolute. Can I say a relative thing in absolute terms? Probably not. That's probably a, an oxymoron. Um, but it's a, re, it's a relative performance question. Second is I the great thing about an ETF is you don't have to know which companies of those 100 are going to do well or badly. You just have to believe that overall, there's going to be value created across the board. Now, a couple of those trillion dollar companies will probably go on to become $2 trillion companies in 10 years. Others that we aren't talking about yet will become the big winners of tomorrow. And I have a feeling you might take us through some of those big winners of tomorrow when we talk through your list, Doc. So, um, you know, I, I, you know it, it's unreasonable to expect the top five will be the top five with each individually market being performance. Hopefully some will, some won't. Overall, though, the great thing about ETF is it changes weightings for you as it grows. So if a company doubles in size, it ends up with twice the weighting in that ETF, which is a wonderful way to basically get automatic rebalancing. And I think... Over time, this is a, I'm, I'm not really a macro thematic kind of guy, but I just think, you know, I've said before lots of times that it feels like a marketing cliche. These are literally the companies who are inventing the future. And I just, I can't imagine a scenario where that group as a whole aren't market beating it. If, you know, unless they literally stop inventing the future, unless something dramatically changes, um, to imagine that the rest of the world's companies end up growing faster 
than the best tech companies on the planet, I think it's just a remarkably difficult thing to imagine and that's behind my confidence. How'd cool. That was great. All right, mate. You're in the hot seat. Let's change seats. Let's virtually get up, metaphorically walk across the table, sit down the other chairs. All right, that's done. Man, I'll tell you what. <laughs> theatre of the mind, people. Theatre of the mind. Stay with us. Value stocks. Markets. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. Let us hear your top five stocks for 2020 and beyond. All right. Okay, I'm going to do... My list is interesting. I've got two ASX-listed stocks and three US-listed companies. Oh, okay, but here's nice. the interesting thing. The two ASX-listed stocks actually happen to be from New Zealand. <laughs> and off Why the, do you hate Australia, Doc? Uh, here's, this is funny. I'm telling uh, ScoMo. I was just... You should tell ScoMo. <laughs> um, he needs to do something about uh, <laughs> the, uh, the entrepreneurial uh, characteristics of Australia. Um, <laughs> this is how, I was just thinking this is funny because there's two uh, Kiwi companies on the list. <laughs> there's, there are two American companies on the list and there's a Brazilian company on the list. So... Let's get started. So the first one on my list is a company called Circo. Uh, the code is SKO. Okay. And what this company does basically is provide software to travel companies like Corporate Travel or Flight Center nice. or others. And what it effectively does is it provides software that can be used to uh, you know automate booking, to connect you know hotels and so on. And so it's basically the plumbing behind uh, corporate travel companies or corporate travel management companies. And recently, uh, as, as a proof of how you know, effective their technology could potentially become, uh, one of the world's largest um, over-the-top, uh, I guess, um, you know, travel agencies, it's basically over-the-top travel agency basically is travel agency that operates on the internet, uh, booking.com. Mm-hmm. Now, people might not, uh, yeah, so, you know, if you're not familiar with Booking.com, then it's also called Priceline. It should be mm-hmm. called Priceline, but Booking, uh, uh, Booking.com is probably um, some people must be might, might be familiar. With book. It's one of the largest travel agencies uh, in the world. Let's say though it's probably not big in Australia, right? The, the Australian kind of travel booking market's been a little bit unusual. Booking.com as a brand is big. Um, Priceline.com is big in the US. Yeah. They don't really have any massive properties here in Australia at the moment, but that, it's enormous overseas. Yeah, yeah. so Booking.com is very popular in Europe. Uh, Priceline.com is very popular in the US. Um, yeah, so they, you know, they're not maybe not massively popular here in Australia. Um, so Circo is interesting because Circo basically provides 90% of the plumbing in the ANZ market. It's basically the dominant plumber for uh, travel agencies in this side of the world. And they're basically trying to take the same idea, same tech, and essentially make it dominant in the Northern Hemisphere. Right. Now, they don't have to dominate the Northern Hemisphere, but if they can take a small, decent share, 5% even, that would be enough to effectively double, triple their uh, current volume of work. And they could, you know, they've got some dominant uh, travel uh, companies here, like Flight Center has operations in the in the U.S., for example, and mm. in Canada and so on. So, you know, that's one nice pathway to um, uh, to find a good foothold in, in North America. Um, so, yeah, and it's not without risks. It's a small company, relatively small company. It's under, I, I would say, $400 million market cap off the top of my head. 
Um, yeah, so that's what I did. Interesting. Why own the plumber and not the company with brand power like a flight center or a corporate traveler or, or a booking holdings? Is Circo at some risk of simply being, you know, the, the next and the last kind of provider of, of software in this in this area? Obviously, there's other competitors. What gives it the right ability, likelihood to remain dominant in this space? Yeah, that's a very very interesting question. So one of the things I think is as as the world sort of moves towards more software, I think one of the things that we see is. Um, you know, if you are a travel agency, then your specialist, your specialization is travel agency. Mm. Um, stick with that. For the software that you need for it, don't try to develop it. Use a specialist. So I think that's uh, that's sort of the underlying idea. There is that you know, uh, stick with the specialists for the the specialist jobs, mm. and and you know the fact that they've had they have about eighty to ninety percent of the market here in Australia, New Zealand. Is, is testament to the fact that you know they're providing quality solutions that other people are using, and these are the, you know corporate travels and the flight centers are dominant mm. brands um, locally. So uh, why is it not dominant uh, overseas is, is I guess a related question, and that's because there's SAP has had a, s- a solution called Concur, which has mm. which is largely the dominant solution uh, in North America and Europe, and that's what they are basically trying to replace. The idea here would be that. Um, they've got a more modern solution which they effectively can displace Concur. But they don't need to displace Concur from you know, the, num- in the number one position. They just need to make enough room for to be a decent number two. Nice. What's next? All right. The next one, this was there, uh, I believe, last year as well. I changed up my list a bit just to create a little bit. I, I could have pretty much gone with my list last year. Me too. It was hard to get extras, wasn't it? Yeah. So I, I thought I'll, I'll add some for the sake of variety and uh, some newness, um, although that's not necessarily a good idea in investing. Sometimes your best ideas are your existing ideas. This was um, this was already there last last year. It's a company called MongoDB, which basically does uh, uh, effectively does database as a service. But its key key offering is a database that is no longer a relational database or no longer a database that is just a row column type of database or key value pair with two uh, um, row column structure. But mm. really, what's, it's a database called uh, a NoSQL database. So it basically database No that, SQL. No SQL. Okay. No, um, a database that you think of it, it's not a relational, it's basically not a relational database. And, and it's a database that uh, allows for storing uh, documents of different um, uh, different sizes, uh, or a different number of columns, and 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 so on. So um, the key thing here is that uh, they have got a an offering called Atlas, which is a database as a service offering. It runs on the cloud. You you know you basically sign up. Everything works from the cloud. Right. And um, you know you 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 pay as you go based on how much you're using compute and storage. Right, and it works off all the cloud major cloud players, Microsoft, um, uh, Amazon, and uh, Google, and you know even Alibaba, for example, in China. And the uh, the Atlas component has been growing really fast. It's about it, that that component itself is a hundred seventy five million dollar run rate business. Last quarter, it was growing at about one hundred eighty five percent year over year. So even if that growth slows down, you know, a bit or some, it's still a phenomenally fast business. And that that ramp up has happened over a couple, 
just a couple of years, which goes to show um, how powerful that model could be. And it's a great funnel for growing the, the other enterprise side of their business where mm. they um, you know, make bigger deals and you know, uh, longer term deals and so on. So yeah, I really like this. It's a very disruptive company and uh, yeah. It's, to use the vernacular, bloody expensive. How sure are you it's gonna be justifying its current price in five years time? Let me say it's cheaper than uh, Prometicus. <laughs> Everything's cheaper than Prometicus. Um, yeah, you know, here's the, the best way to think about this is um, it's, you know, I'll, I'll give you a rough rest estimate. Mm. But it, it is, it's roughly doing, let's say it's going to do about $420 million by the end. It's reported third quarter. By the end of this year, it will do about $420 million of revenue. Mm-hmm. I expect it that this is a company that can grow at about 30 to 35% for quite some time, which means it can double every, you know, revenue should be roughly doubling every two years. Okay. That takes me, so, you know, take 420, call it 420, it's an easy number. Um, you know, that basically means, you know, let's make it 450 for easy maths. That makes it 900 in two more years. And in four years, you're roughly at about 1.8 billion. Mm. Right. So... If you think out a few years and you think the impact and the size of this business and the revenue it generates, uh, remember this is a highly scalable business. It's a software business. These sort of businesses can have you know, a bit of margins of you know, 30% plus. Um, how much would people pay for a $1.8 billion run rate business that is still growing at say 30%? Mm. You know, somewhere north of, I would say, 15 to 18 billion. Um, you know, if you're paying 15 to 18 billion, that's really a you know, nice double from here in four years. I'll take a nice double in four years. <laughs> that's good. What's next, mate? Um, the next one is, again, a company I had last year on my list. It's a small Kiwi company, but uh, fortunately Australian only company. listed in Australia, so we can call it an Australian company. Definitely Australian company. Uh, definitely Australian so company. One of, some of Australasia's best. Yeah, Australasia's best, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know it's not our fault that uh, New Zealand has a small in, uh, small market. Um, I will take their companies. So this exactly. is a company called Volpara Health Technologies. This basically is a software company, another software company, uh, which provides software to uh, breast cancer screening centers, mm-hmm. and effectively they provide software that does a bunch of different things. But it provides uh, ability to automate. Uh, you know, measurement for breast density, which is one of the known factors for um, breast cancer, and therefore it can be used for deciding or evaluating next steps in terms of who needs further screening. Mm. And it's also an enterprise, um, you know, management software in the sense that it also allows you to keep track of things like, you know, how well are your radiographer is doing, hmm. uh, how well is the machine being used, you know, how is the pressure, what type of pressure was applied when the breast, um, you know, mammogram was done and, and so on. So it's, it's a quality control software. It's got some nice tailwinds in the form of uh, uh, the FDA, which uh, in the U.S. Hmm. providing, uh, requiring that uh, the screening centers um, make sure that, um, they, you know, they've been providing, uh, they've been provided the density information, mm. and and that their, uh, you know, technicians are actually doing the right thing in terms of, you know, how, you know, um, how they're actually going about doing the breast density measurements, mm-hmm. so in terms of doing the mammograms. So um, this, yeah, so this business is primarily U.S. focused in terms of its sales. Um, but its opportunity is really global. And, uh, you know, they've got about 8% of the market share roughly right now in the U.S. So there's a long long runway, long opportunity. 
uh, here. And again, this is another expensive business by traditional measure. Um, but yeah, if it can become dominant and have uh, a dominant share of the breast screening market, mm. uh, then you know I think this is this is a winner. Very good. I'm curious as to the. I mean, obviously, it's ticking all the right boxes. What can what can bring Volpara undone? Is it is it simply a lack of traction? Is it a competitor? Is it overreach? Is it price? Um, I mean, it's still a decent way to go to be traditionally. I won't say cheap, but but fairly valued. A lot of lot of lot of kind of you know future building into the current share price. What's what keeps you up at night when it comes to Volpara? So uh, one of the, a couple of things. One, this company recently did a big transaction, which was it was an acquisition, but more or less like a merger. They acquired uh, a patient information system uh, company out of the U.S. And what that does is this is one of the stumbling blocks in some sense. Patient information system basically has stores patient information, and this company's mm. patient information MRS had about twenty five percent market share. Right. Effectively, for Volpara solutions to software solutions to work well, you really wanted to integrate with patient information system. Then it becomes like one whole thing. So, on the one hand, you can say that this is a good thing because it allows them to integrate MRS with Volpara. But the other hand, the other uh, patient information system providers, the remaining 75%, they mm-hmm. might not like this idea or the combination. They make, make it more <laughs> right. resistant right. to... So on the one hand, there's cross-sell opportunities with MRS clients. On the other hand, you might be actually be blocking opportunities. So that's something that I, I worry about. The other thing I really worry about is it's a small software company. It's still pretty subscale. And okay. software companies can generate really high margins, mm-hmm. but at scale. So the question right, really okay. is, can you get to a decent enough scale uh, where you are generating enough money because at some point you're going to be you're going to be evaluated or you're going to be valued (laughs) based on cash flows that you're generating not based on multiples of your revenues and so on right so this is a really so is it scale or bust yeah I mean if it doesn't scale there is a problem because I mean this you know it's it's annual revenue is probably around you know it's probably going to do about 25 million ish uh, revenue in a year that Mm. is not big Right in 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 a sort of a global context, when you're thinking of global markets, mm. uh, on the one hand, talking about MongoDB, that's doing 420 million and it still loses money. Mm. Right here, we are talking about 25 million <laughs> right. uh, TV dollars. Scale is relative, right? Huh? Yeah, um, and you're losing money, right? Yeah. So I yeah. mean, and it's an order of magnitude, you know, a factor of 20 <laughs> right. difference. So um, yeah, so I mean, that is the big big risk. Mm-hmm. May the next one. You've mentioned to me before, because I recognize the name. I can't remember what it does. Tell me about it. So the next one is interesting. Um, you know, one company that you really like has actually taken it. The next company is called Stoneco. It's a weird name. It's a Brazilian company. Uh, oh, and, now I remember. Go and on. what it does is basically, it's the easiest way to think about it is it's, it's an FPOS solution provider. Mm. That doesn't sound very interesting, does it? Um, but in in the Brazilian context where you're serving, and it serves mostly small to medium-scale enterprises, there are lots and lots of them in Brazil. Mm. But it does a bunch of other things. It provides software um, for managing uh, your business. It provides CRM solutions for managing your business. It also provides... Um, 
you know, in addition to providing the FPOS and the ability to actually, you know, transact, mm. it also provides, in some sense, financing for mm. running your business. So, you know, if you are being paid with some sort of credit instrument and you don't get paid immediately, they, they will provide you the money now so that you have the cash flow for running business. Um, and, you know, in, in return for that, um, they take a cut. Right. So the mm. interesting thing about this business is that it's a relatively uh, young business, but it's it's highly profitable, mm. um, and you know it, it it's got strong net margins. It's growing re- really at a fast rate, and nice. it still has only about six seven percent of the market share in uh, in Brazil. And if it can get to its stated goal of 25% market share, which the market is dominated like our market by the FPOS <laughs> providing yeah, right. of uh, big, slow, incumbent, re- almost dead banks, mm. um, this will be a phenomenally uh, profitable, profit-gushing machine. Um, as I mentioned, Berkshire Hathaway has a cornerstone stake in this business. They've had it, I think, since IPO. You're welcome. Now, um, I don't think this is a Warren Buffett <laughs> position. This is a position from uh, via one of his uh, lieutenant. Yes. Um, Ted or Todd. Uh, Ted or Todd. Uh, the, one of those guys has been building positions in fintech businesses around the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a fintech business out of Brazil. They have some fintech positions in Australia, in, in India. And so on, but I think it's interesting that you know that they have a, it's not a big component of my thesis. But my component of the thesis is Brazil has a growing market; its middle class is growing. It's you know in a middle you know it's a middle income country that's mm. trying to grow. Um, this is a profitable business, really growing fast, run by um, you know the founder still at the helm. It ticks a lot of boxes. It's rare to find you know fast growing business yet that's profitable. Um, and when I say fast growing, it's like growing top line at 50, 60%, 70%, right? Amazing. So it's in, amazing. Um, so, yeah, I really, really like this. Mate, there's lots been said in the media and elsewhere about South American uh, troubles, uh, both economically, frankly, sometimes law and order, and also uh, currency. If I'm thinking about a Brazilian company, how am I thinking about it in terms of probably the US dollars it reports in, the Australian dollars I get from it? You know, what, what's the, are there risks there? Are there concerns there? You know, I guess in some scenario, the Brazilian real could be meaningfully lower permanently or something else. How are you thinking about currency? I think you hit all my, you know, if I was writing a recommendation and I was going to say risks section, <laughs> this is exactly what I would say. Absolutely. So uh, Brazil is a country with a lot of promise, a lot of opportunities, mm. a lot of smart people, huge corruption. Right. Um, so overnight, rules can rules of engagement could change. Yeah. That could destroy this business. Um, there's also a lot of competition in Brazil, and uh, the incumbents have engaged in price price wars. These guys have not engaged in price wars, and basically okay. have stuck to essentially saying, "Well, you know, we offer a value added solution, and people will pay for that value added solution." So far, it seems to be true. Um, uh, Brazilian economy has been under recession for like god knows how long yeah right um so yes i mean this is let me put it this way i like this company i really think this company is 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 a good company to own it provides opportunity in terms of it provides access to an emerging market provides access to a different type of market uh yet while providing access to you know exposure to fintech uh, fintech growth um, but yeah I would be careful in terms of how much or how big a position like this should be 
in 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 their portfolio, mm. and yeah, all the risks you say, any one of them can come to pass. Mate, you're four fifths of the way there. Hit us with your last great stock for 2020 and beyond. My last great stock. This was a stock I believe also on my 2019 list. Uh, actually, it was not. How? What a big omission. Okay. <laughs> um, this company is called Altrix. The code is AYX, and it basically does data science for the non-data scientists. Mm. It provides a suite of software solutions that can be used for basically mining the data and understanding the data. This company has been growing at a really incredible pace. It's you know already cash flow positive and you know I can see this type of solution having widespread use in you know some of the world's largest companies, but not just the largest companies, even the, some of the large, not so large companies. Mm. And uh, yeah, as, as, as they said, data is the new currency. Uh, and this company's at the forefront of mining that currency. So uh, I think this company again has, has a bright future just from that point of view. Mm. In terms of the tech landscape, how much, it's obviously on the, on the forefront of change, how much um, runway I mean, it's got, it's got all the runway in the world in absolute terms. In relative terms, you've talked a lot about tech leadership and, and amounts of kind of um, how far ahead of the competition companies are as to how much kind of tough free time they have. How confident are you that it stays at the forefront of the competitive set over time? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, I mean, the many of these companies that I mentioned, they spend a huge amount of money on R&D. Um, a, a good part of the reason they're not that profitable yet is that they are spending you know, upwards of 20% of their revenue on R&D. So I think um, building scale and building R&D capabilities to stay in the forefront is important. The one thing I want to point out is um, both with a company like MongoDB or with StoneCo or with Alteryx, what is important is how ingrained you become in the workflow of the your customers. To some degree because these are structural, almost seismic changes in a lot of industries, right? Like once you take the service on, you're kind of fundamentally changing your workflow in a way you may not do again. Exactly. So like if, if you're using MongoDB as an example, then you've you've re-architected your database to right. use MongoDB. Your <laughs> yeah. applications are yeah. now using MongoDB as a database. This sort of change happens once in a generation. Right. Right. And the bet here would be that the pace of Atlas's growth basically shows that there is a huge generation. There is a generation of developers mm. who are developing new app- applications around this, nice. and they're not going to be changing it anytime soon. The same thing with the the growth of Alteryx basically shows that there's all these businesses that are building workflows around Alteryx, and they're basically replacing you know uh, you know Excel's and other archaic type of solutions. Mm. And it is hard to see how you would shift from this to something else mm. in a relatively short period of time, which gives these companies to, you know, the ability to continue to grow their, uh, you know, their their toolkit, but also to, uh, you know, just becoming more and more ingrained and more incumbent. You know, again, it, it, there's a sort of like, it's a play saying that, you know, these are once in a generation sort of changes. The same thing with Stoneco, you'd say that um, the the changes happening in the Brazilian economy and the small and medium medium scale inter- entrepreneurs and businesses are making this. I would say the same thing is also true for mm. uh, Volpara in the sense that uh, 
breast cancer clinics are being required to do this, right? And they're doing this now. Right, right. And once you do this, unless the standard of care changes, this becomes the standard of care. Mm. Right. And and yeah, so at least for those those software companies, I think that's the the trend. To some extent, one could say the same thing for Circle too. Like once you find yourself embedded, it's unlikely, you know, it takes money, time, energy to embed those solutions. There is a decent implementation phase of bringing your solution on board to an existing, uh, you know, a travel management company. Right, right, yeah. Once you do, once you spend that time, energy, and got people in your travel management company to use yeah, yeah. these workflows, uh, why would you change that soon unless, you know, uh, there is an impending reason to do so? Mate, that is a wonderful way actually to finish up because that is the sort of thing that kind of typifies your investment approach. And frankly, I won't necessarily put words in my mouth say all five of these stocks, but I think all five of these stocks. I mean, there's there's some degree of, you know, your your style is to back the the next generation of innovation, and, and you know, some will win, some will will not necessarily win, but overall, that has been over time and continues to be with your own investing a really successful way to to invest. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, it's yeah. I'm all, I was always mindful that you know we're in in a we've been in a bull market, which means which you know all these sort <laughs> right, of entrepreneurial yeah. things um, get priced up, and that that helps. Mm. But yeah, I, I mean, I I find this approach um, useful, and as you said, I, I don't think you know all of these ideas would be uh, would be would be winners. I in mm, fact, I expect mm. on average most of the things that I pick, I would think. I'd be very happy if I get 50% of them right. Because, <laughs> right. Yeah, but I think that 50% mark is still probably sufficient because I think that once that win, they win really well. Yeah. And, you know, the upside is always more than the downside because, you know, the maximum you lose is probably 100%. Mm-hmm. So. I like it. By the way, my point wasn't that you have some losers at all. My point was more just the, the excitement of this particular approach is, is impressive and, and certainly I think even as you're talking, I'm thinking, why, why am I doing more of this? So maybe I should... Uh, Consider more of it. I'll come to you some ideas. No, no. My my point was to just mention that I have losers. <laughs> That's <laughs> no, fair, mate. It's to just remind myself and everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I like the, I like the honesty. Do you want me to run through the stock, or do you want to run through the stocks? Um, oh, the the the, the codes. The, yeah, the, yeah, the can, codes. I, the, the stocks and the codes. Okay, so uh, the first one was Circo. The code is SKO. This is on the ASX. Uh, the next one was MongoDB. This is, I believe, a Nasdaq listed company. It's a US company. Code is MDB. The third one was a was a Kiwi company, which we were basically calling an Australian company called Volpara Health Technologies. Um, it's headquartered in Wellington, but they all, you know, who knows Wellington or Sydney. Um, <laughs> uh, the code is uh, VHT, uh, ASX VHT. Uh, the, the next one was Tonco. The code is STNE. Uh, this is a NASDAQ listed company. And the last one was Altrix. And the code is AYX. Very good. Thank you, sir. We will, um, we will, cover these we'll probably check in and maybe once every six months once every 12 months we'll see how we go it's a bit of fun for us and hopefully it's a bit of interest for you we do pick these stocks we think they're likely to be market beating as a group again i'll remember group don't pick one and then ask us why that one didn't work um i have no idea which if any or all are going to do best or worst or in between um so as always consider this part of a portfolio i, I have a speculation that all 10 would make a nice portfolio actually but separate to that Anyway, have a think about that. And as a reminder, we are recording this early, so we will, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of lock in the lock in the price as we get closer. We'll also probably in a couple of weeks' time, I think, Doc, maybe two or three weeks from now, we will look back on our 2019 stocks, and uh, hopefully by then I will have caught up with you. Otherwise, I might put off for another couple of months and just delay the pain. Just put off for another six months. <laughs> I have to. Now, mate, before we go, we've got a little bit of time, a little tiny bit of time. You know what I want to do, don't you? 
Some questions. Let's get into the mailbag. All right, let's do something akin to... We don't do exactly do rapid fire. You and I have a lot to say, a lot of topics, but let's do what we can. The first question is from Adrian, mate, saying, Hi, Captain and Doc. Love the podcast as always, and I'm not just saying that to try and get my question answered on the pod. Uh, well, maybe, maybe. I love how you tell it how it is in regards to how the media creates sensationalist headlines and helping us fools stay calm. Adrian, if we're doing nothing other than that, I reckon our job's pretty well done. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased, humbled that you've taken that from us. Um, you know, I, I say regularly, I will continue to say probably more than in the past, investing is as much and probably more a psychological exercise than it is a, an academic one. I think if you can get that bit right, you're miles ahead of most other people. Um, and in investing, you don't need to be that much further ahead of other people to do very, very well over the long term. My question is how to get into a mindset of not looking back on the what-ifs and regretful selling. I previously purchased Avita Medical a few years ago as an inexperienced 20-year-old and held it until a ripe old age of 23. Because Seriously, Doc. They're, they're, they're just trolling us. This is just like rubbing it in. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're trolling us yeah. now. Because I felt like management was not looking after shareholders and gifting themselves shares. After a tumultuous couple of years where my holdings halved at one point and then doubled, my holdings by the time I sold it, 20 cents, has continued to shoot up and become a potential six-bagger. Even though I knew with a billion shares on issue, they'd have to make a considerable amount of money to get to a decent valuation. And if they they use the classic, we'll be millionaires if only get to X percent of the addressable market, which is regular and honest. Doc, what do you say to Adrian? So the story there is obviously one of, I, I bought, I probably made some money from the look of it, maybe not, but in any case, sold early, the stock then went on to greater heights. How do you get past the mindset of what ifs and regretful selling um you know like adrian i think again like it okay the fact that something has gone up 6x doesn't necessarily mean that your selling was wrong Mm -hmm. in the sense that if there was a reason behind why you sold it and if you think the reason still holds right you're you're still correct in selling it Uh, i mean i don't know much about avita america i know a little bit um, uh, I did look at it recently uh, because, you know, they were going about doing a roadshow, I believe, in the U.S. as well and, you know, drumming up support there. Um, and, you know, you, you, it, it is sometimes difficult uh, to to estimate what the value of the company would be given this very early stage business. So maybe you were right in the sense that you made the decision that, well, you know, look, maybe it looks fairly valued or overvalued enough that, you know, mm. uh, gotten ahead of itself and you wanted to sell out, um, assuming what, you know, it, it was part of your thesis. Um, that said, every everyone, every so often, it's going to make a mistake. There's going to, you know, you're going to not buy something that's going to go up. You're going to sell something that's going to then go up. Yeah. You're going to hold on to something that's going to go down. Uh, that's all part of investing, I think. And, uh, you know, it's good to try to draw some lessons sometimes. Mm. Sometimes we can draw too many lessons out of them, which is uh, which is not, I think, very useful. I think what, what, is, what matters is um, as long as you continue to hold... Um, a good collection of shares in a diversified portfolio and they continue to beat the market, uh, then, you know, the rest, everything is a little bit of a sideshow. And, uh, yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Yeah, I can't add much more to that. Honestly, this is a really, really, really poor answer, except it's also the best one, which is you just kind of have to get used to it. That The reality is you are going to have many, many more 
um, disasters through your investing life that are worse than this one for a hundred different reasons. Um, that is the reality. Doctors finished talking about the fact that some of these stocks are going to lose money, some are going to make money. Um, the the worst thing you can strive for as an investor is one hundred percent success rate because that means you never invest. And and some degree, this and again, I talked about being a psychological process. Stocks going to eventually start hitting me for saying stuff like when I keep repeating myself. But at some like this is literally the psychology of investing, right? It is it is embracing the fact you know you're going to be wrong and you have to do it anyway. You, you almost have to make friends with the pain if you like, you know, to use a, a horrible self-improvement phrase. Um, it is going to happen. There's going to be more and more and more of these, right? So the best thing you can do is literally make your peace with it. You may, you'll, it'll never stop it. You may not even ever get over it. You just have to make your peace with it and you're just going to happen. Uh, the second of that, what I would say, and not about Avita at all, I don't know the company from Adam. And I'm not saying to anybody don't sell, but what I would say is, some of my, well, my single biggest mistake at, at Motley Fool Share Advisor, the service that I run at the Fool, um, is is selling out on a stock too early, same as what you've done. I could have I could have lost 100% on six other stocks before I offset the money that I cost our members by selling a particular company. This was Domino's too early. It was I sold it at I bought it at six, sold it at 13. They went on to be 70 at some point, back to 45 odd at the moment. Um, it is back on our scorecard, by the way, as a recommendation, but I didn't get to bank the money in between because I was too silly. The... There, you know, be careful about how many speculative stocks you own, but also be slow to sell. My, my my greatest learning maybe over all this time is just being slower to sell. If you've done the work and you're buying for the right reasons, and I don't know whether you did, by the way. So again, this is absolutely not about Avita either then or now. If you've done enough work and you can confidently say, I bought for the right reasons, you're probably better off holding as many or more of those until you genuinely know the thesis is broken. I'm far, far more likely to sell these days on quality rather than valuation and that's because if you've got a quality business and the, and the underlying thesis of i think this is a really well-run business doing good things doing their best with good with good favorable economics and all that kind of stuff if the price is a bit too high i mean, a, a to can keep going higher b if you've got if you've done well to pick the company in the first place you're probably being run by a great management team or at least a decent management team with decent brands or contracts or something going for the business in the first place. So I'm far, far less likely to sell now based on quality reasons and far, far, oh, sorry, on valuation reasons, far, far more likely to sell on quality reasons. You're probably better off overall holding rather than selling, even if you're a little bit uncomfortable about valuation. Doc? Um, I, I think that the last point, actually, you know, I... It may remiss to say that, you know, that's something that I actually missed and I should have said that, yeah. Be slow to sell is actually probably a great thing to do. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Let's keep going, mate. A question from Mark. Because you get kicks out of Instagram questions, he says. How did he know? You get kicks out of it. <laughs> and everybody gets kicks that, you know, that this Zuck thing is still on. I mean, come on. Okay, fine. Instagram for the win, mate. Because you get kicks out of Instagram questions, straight up. Thank you for answering my question on your recommended reading lists. Understand the basis for your foolish goodness. It is always enjoyable listening to you both banter about a topic close to my heart. I have two questions. I love the second one, by the way. I'm looking forward to getting this one. Firstly, you keep preaching your hashtag get a better rate ideology. How do you weigh up the negative impact numerous mortgage transfers on your credit report, especially noting that positive reporting has not been fully embraced? Uh, I'll answer this one, Doc, because it's normally my better rate rant, so feel free to jump in as well. Um, look, at some point, changing credit providers too frequently can negatively impact your credit score, but far, far less impactful than you think. Um, far worse to have multiple credit products rather than multiple changes of bank or building society. That said, I don't advocate people change every six or 12 months, right? This is about finding the best rate you can. Generally speaking, by the way, if you find a great rate, there's every probability you're going to be a non-bank lender 
um, or non-major bank lender anyway, who culturally and frankly strategically wants to be a lower rate provider because that's how they get their business. So if you go from paying you know, a higher rate at big bank number one and you end up as I am with Sydney Credit Union, for example, again, I have no, no commercial relationship other than a transaction account and a mortgage with them. Um, chances are they're going to keep their rates reasonably low relative to the competition because that's just their business model. And so you don't need to change regularly. That's probably the first thing. Second thing is, I actually, when I say get a better rate, I actually don't advocate people change if they can avoid it. You're far better off going to your bank saying, hey, I can get this better rate. What can you do to match it? And if you get, they can match it, then you're even better off. If they get meaningfully close to it, you may still be better off staying and then changing less frequently. So yes, absolutely, mate. You're right to ask the question. I don't think people should change too regularly. Um, that being said, there's a bit of money to be saved. But if you can make a, a one-off massive change, the people who can save the most, the ones who probably haven't negotiated a rate for five years, are probably paying something close to the standard variable rate and have 0.4, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6% to save. Once you've saved that and got to a very competitive rate, the chance that you'd want to or need to change anytime in the next 12 or 18 months is pretty low. So I wouldn't let that put you off. Uh, I would change anyway. I mean, look, you know, I said, if, if, if the third or fourth time you want to change to, to save 0.1%, you can't because your credit score, it's a pretty nice problem to have, right? If, you, if you're on the second lowest rate in the market. Um, so I, I think the benefits far, far, far outweigh any cost when it comes to credit reporting. Doc, any thoughts? Um, no, I don't have any thoughts on that. Next question is a really cool one. I like this one. We might have fun with this. I don't know your views on this. He says, what are your thoughts on an Australian sovereign wealth fund? Taking a cut of the taxes from fossil fuel consumption and mineral extraction for investment. Say so use 50% of gains to invest in renewable energy research, food production, protection, etc. And how would we balance this against the huge sums of money already invested in Australia by super funds? Sovereign Wealth Fund, mate, yes or no? I love this question, actually. I think this is something actually Australia should do. Um, because um, some countries, are, I mean, again, it depends on whether you can do it successfully or not. Um, but a country like Norway, for example, has, has done really well with its sovereign wealth fund. And, you know, in a way, um, yeah, this, you know, it's, it's effectively saying that, you know, we are going to pave our future using our current resources and, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to invest and grow, or which is, you know, which can then in the future being used for paying various things or just reducing taxes or whatever else. Yeah, so I think this is a, this is a great idea. I like this. Yeah, I, I thought you would. I, I'm a massive, massive, massive fan of it. I think... Uh, I think we've missed, look, unfortunately we've missed the boat. And I, again, whenever we talk policy, there are positives and negatives and there are political parties that were for and against stuff. So, I, you know, it is what it is. Um, I'm absolutely not scared to put a, a policy point of view across, uh, knowing that it's a policy view rather than a party political one. Um, we wasted dramatically the boom of the mining boom of the 2007 through 2011 or so. Um, it was passed on as tax cuts and people can say, well, you know, we deserve the tax cuts and that kind of stuff. And that's a whole different issue for someone else. The reality was it was a one-off boom that was delivered to Australian taxpayers as a recurring tax cut. And that makes no sense. If your boss gives you, you know, a thousand dollar bonus at the end of the year, uh, buying a, a new car on the basis of getting $1,000 every single year is probably a gutsy and not very smart thing to do. That's kind of what we did with the mining boom uh, that we wasted on passing on recurring tax cuts. Now, again, we can argue about how much government should tax and spend, and that's a whole different question. The reality was the money that was generated by that as a one-off was spent as a recurrence. I, I absolutely think we should put it in a sovereign wealth fund. Um, Mark, I think it, it's a it's a smart, smart, smart idea. I would go further. I think when you can borrow, government can borrow at one, one and a half percent. This is a very, very un- a controversial view, unconventional view. Frankly, we should be buying back national assets, in my view, not because they're national assets, not because of any xenophobic or nationalistic perspective on my behalf, simply because if you can find a business you can buy the shares of 
and buy them to borrow at 1%, the chance that your returns from that purchase are going to exceed 1% is almost 100% on average across the board. Now, individual companies, again, for what it's worth, if you said to me, I could borrow at 1% with no margin calls, I would buy as much of the ASIC as you would let me. I'd buy as much of the US market as you would let me. And so that's a really, really easy one. So yes, I would absolutely do a sovereign wealth fund. I don't think we've got exactly so much surplus tax revenue at the moment that we can afford to fund it a lot is the problem, but I would frankly use borrowing and do it that way. Um, now, governments aren't great at investing, so we have to work out how it's done, but the super fund, the, 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 the future fund is a pretty good starting point, right? We've found a way to invest on behalf of the government at arm's length from the government reasonably successfully. If you gave the super, if you said to the future fund, here's another, I'm gonna make a number up, trillion dollars that we borrowed at 1%, knock yourselves out, all you gotta give me back is 2% a year to pay the bills and you can have the rest, it's an easy decision. Yeah, I mean, you know, an interesting point might be to say that, you know, um, all super is actually going to the super fund. <laughs> right, yes. Now, what I will say too, you ask about how is it um, balanced against the Australian, uh, so I'll actually read it rather than summarizing. How would we balance this against the huge sums of money already invested in Australia by super funds? Um, the answer is that, and Doc will absolutely back me up on this, Australian investors generally, let alone super funds, should be investing far, far, far more outside Australia than we currently are. Yeah, and that's so. that's an easy thing. Yeah, You're right, if we put all that money to work on the ASX, it would make the ASX uninvestable because share price would be so high as to be stupid. Um, there is Australia is two percent of the world's capital markets. In other words, we could deploy fifty times as much money outside Australia as inside very easily. Now, whether we want that proportion to be the ongoing proportion is a different question, but it's unavoidable that we should be investing far more just because we happen to be born in Australia or raise taxes in Australia or be governed from Canberra doesn't mean that an investment in Woolworths is any smarter than an investment in Apple or Amazon or Berkshire, which Doc and I own various portions of each of those three. Um, to say that we, you know, the future fund or, or any other fund should only, or frankly, Australian super funds should invest in Australia because this is where we are. I think is absolute madness. Yeah, I think I think that's, that's in in a way it's actually a brilliant way of securing your future, right? You 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 basically oh, totally. you you basically you use your current riches and uh, you know use that to partake in other people's innovations. I mean, you know. That's, that's really having, you know, your cake and eating it too. Oh, and in right. a previous podcast, we talked about Chinese buying Bellamy because yeah. they have a longer-term perspective. Yeah. What can be the longer-term perspective than an Australian sovereign wealth fund that literally is investing for multiple, you know, my grandkids' grandkids? Yeah, exactly. So if you're, if you're investing for Australia for 100 years plus, you know, go I'm find the- 1%. Yeah. Drives me nuts. To go buy the best businesses you can, yeah. Yeah. Wh- whether they're ASX, NZX, or whatever else, private businesses, whatever it is. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think the idea of even nationalizing or, you know, buying back or buying substantial shares in, mm, um, mm. Um, you know, uh, national asset type of businesses uh, makes absolute sense. Madness. Mate, one last one quickly. We're almost finished. We've got one last question. So I figure I don't want to leave it as an orphan by itself. This one's from Mitch. Mitch is also rubbing it in. Thanks very much, Mitch. Hi, guys. First of all, a great podcast for people wanting to gain the ultimate goal of financial freedom. Mitch, I'm just, I'm just going to say that sounds like something you should write as a review on iTunes is all I'm saying. I think so. He says, I'm a 21-year-old finance student. Thanks for rubbing it in. And I'm currently thinking ultra long-term. Good man. I recently had a chat with a friend who urged me to think of diversifying globally with a low-cost ETF to get exposure to the likes of Alphabet, Alibaba, and of course, the doc's favorite, Apple. Other than that, I can see some merits in this approach, but with the dollar so weak, is it currently higher risk and what part do exchange rates play when investing internationally? Would love to know your thoughts full on. As always, Mitch, love the sign off. Mate, I'm going to throw this one straight to you. With the dollar at 68-ish cents, is now really the time you're buying an overseas ETF? This is a brilliant question. I guess he hit it, he hit it right. 
Uh, it's probably one of the biggest risks right now in terms of buying an international ETF or ETF that has international exposure with no hedging mm. um, or buying direct, a, you know, especially in the US because relatively, relative to the US dollar, our dollar is weak. Um, it Here's the thing though, if you believe that the long-term average is say um, around 75 cents, right? Mm. And if that is the average, then you know, you're not, you're not meaningfully, you're, you're about 10% from there. If you're thinking long-term compounding and you can get enough outperformance, then uh, 10% is r- roughly one year's return. Right. In in that sense, it probably does not matter if your um, outlook is, you know, five plus years, right? If your outlook is a decade, it probably does not matter. If your outlook is three years or less, then it probably does matter a lot because the mm. exchange rate could be anywhere in, in that period. That said, you know, of course, if you're buying at 68 cents and then by the time you're selling uh, Australian dollars, you know, is a dollar thirty, that is going to take out a lot of your returns. So that is a meaningful risk um, that one needs to be aware of. Um, but, you know, I think on balance, I think over, over a longish period, I think we should be still okay. Yeah, I think that's right. I've I've been reluctant, as I've said to you, Doc, off, off air, to to invest in large amounts in the US for that reason. I think, um, I think ultra long term, as you rightly point out, Doc. The the good so the thing is that unless you have a, let me take a half step back. The currency matters only as much as the two transactions you make to transfer money over to the US, and then transfer money back from the US. Now, the chance that dollar isn't sixty eight cents at some future point between now and hopefully when you need money, which given you 21 is probably literally up to 60 years ago, here's time, you can time your exchange back anyway. So first on the first instance, I, I think Doc's right. Over the long term, the compound value of it is going to dwarf any exchange rate changes. That's the first important thing. Second thing is let's say you get to 58, right? Imagine being that old. Uh, some of us are getting closer than you are, mate. But let, imagine you're 58. You're thinking, okay, well, I, I know I'm going to need the money sometime in the next 10 years. So I'm just going to take advantage if and when the exchange rate gets lower than average, I might try and bring some of that money back. And you can absolutely decide when you want to return that money. So yes, at 68 cents, if the dollar goes to a buck US, you know, say, oh, I've lost all this money. But like all short-term price volatility, if the if the, if the dollar subsequently goes 65 cents, then you actually made some money on the currency. So yes, if you knew you had to cash out at some arbitrary time in the future and you couldn't know what the exchange rate was at that point, that might be a consideration. Otherwise... I would happily invest in the US markets, in US stocks, in a US ETF, a global ETF, and just simply let time do its thing. Then as as and when you get to, as I said, in decades and decades time, redeem that cash, you simply choose a good time for when the price and the currency are, if not completely favorable, you don't, you're not going to pick it exactly, you're not going to know exactly how far it goes up or down, but you just, you just do it at a time of your choosing when the exchange rate is favorable enough that you feel comfortable. How'd I go, Doc? I think you went fantastic. Mate, that is it for the first podcast of 2020. It doesn't feel like 2020, does it? It doesn't, but this year went by pretty quick. It did. Well, that's because it's not 2020. It's only 2019 as we record this. <laughs> but, you know, for it, it, our future selves, mate, right now, with any luck, I'm sitting in front of the cricket. I'm pretty happy about that. I'm actually, I'm actually in it. I'm actually future Scott. I'm, I'm feeling very, very envious of future Scott, who's sitting in front of the first day of the, uh, of the New Year's test at the SCG. Anyway. Hopefully, he's enjoying that. Hopefully, you've enjoyed our podcast and hopefully, the Aussies are winning on day one. And that wraps us up for the first podcast of 2020. Before you go, start the year off. Here's the thing. Have you got a New Year's resolution yet? You probably don't. 
Maybe you do. Maybe it's one of those lose weight, stop smoking. You can't really keep those. You know what a resolution you can keep? Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. I think that's a resolution. You can take that off your list. How good would it be to know that on the 4th of January, you've kept your New Year's resolution? I think that's a pretty good resolution, don't you? Doug? I love that idea. That's a great, you know, great. Go to iTunes, provide, you know, or go to the podcast app on iTunes and provide a beautiful review. Leave a review, leave some stars, just, you know. Five stars. And feel good, exactly. And feel good about yourself because you've kept a resolution. So there you go. New Year's resolution for everybody. For the rest of this year, you can say, when someone says, oh, how are you going with the resolution? You say, nailed it. Already done it. Job done. <laughs> if that is not the way to start 2020, I don't know what is. So do that for us, please. And don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.